0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We are continuing our study this morning through this uh, little epistle of 1 Thessalonians. And today we're going to be looking at the last three verses Of chapter 3. This is just really one sentence in the Greek. And this is a prayer that contains a rare optative verbal forms, the word direct, the word increase, and the word abound. They're optative, and the optative mood is the mood of potentiality that's used in prayers. So Paul says, now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Yeshua direct our way to you. Now, the verb direct here, It's katyuthuno, which is a singular verb, okay? But it refers to both God the Father and Yeshua. So we have a compound subject of a singular verb. Now that's important because he's praying, and he's praying to both of them and asking both of them to do something, which tells me they have a very, Paul has a very high Christology, This prayer would not be possible if Paul did not believe in the deity of Christ. He's putting Christ and the Father together. God the Father, Yeshua the Christ, he's connecting them. can only do that if Yeshua is God. And we see here Yeshua's ability to hear and answer prayer also attests to his deity. I mean, you don't pray to him if he can't answer anything. And here he uses Yeshua's name as Lord or Kyrios, which underscores, again, his divinity since the name derives from the Greek Old Testament designation of Yahweh. And then the application of Zechariah 14.5 to our Lord Yeshua, I think strikingly confirms this conclusion. At the end of verse 13, he says, "...at the coming of our Lord Yeshua with all his saints." And Zechariah says this, "...and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel, and you shall flee..." as you fled from earthquakes in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then Yahweh my God will come, and all His holy ones with Him. So Zechariah says Yahweh will come with all His holy ones, and Paul says Yahweh my God will come. At the coming of Yahweh, Yeshua with all His saints. So basically Paul is stressing here that Yeshua is Yahweh, which I think Yahweh makes, Yeshua makes very clear when he says this in John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The pronoun he is not in the text. It's added by the translators. I think they're helping us out by doing stuff like this. But what he is saying is that people have to believe Certain things so they don't die in their sins. And the conditional clause provides the proper object of faith if you do not believe that I am. Yeshua is claiming the name of God, I am. He is asserting equality with Yahweh himself who is revealed as the I am, that I am the self-existent eternal God. And people, to deny the deity of Christ is to not deny the fact that God in the flesh came to die for our sins. Now it's interesting, Paul doesn't go into any detail here, he just lays out Yeshua is God, he's deity. Because he doesn't have to, because as Paul was with him, one of the first things, one of the fundamental things he'd have been teaching him is the deity of Christ, who Christ really was. You know, the deity of Christ was not some late invention by the early church fathers as some of the liberals contend today. This was fundamental, foundational teaching. And we see that as, as he lays this out to the Thessalonians. He said, and he's praying that he would direct our way to you. Again, direct is kat yuthuno. It's a rare, aorist active, singular, optative verb. It's used in several prayers in the New Testament. Kat means to make or keep straight, to straighten out, to direct or guide. Now, if you remember back in 2.18, Paul said, we really wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us from coming. Well, here Paul's praying for the removal of those obstacles that Satan had put in the way. He said, direct our way, open our path up, straighten our path so we can get to you. That's our prayer. He's asking the Father, he's asking the Son to make a way for him to visit them. As we've gone over many times, it's very important that he get back there and be with the Thessalonians. He said in 3.10 that he wanted to be with them so he could supply what was lacking in your faith. Now, some people might take that as an insult. You know, they didn't because they were young Christians. They were, not, they were probably a half a year old in the Lord. And they needed the apostolic teaching. They needed to be strengthened through the teaching. But here's something for us believers. I think we also need the apostolic teaching. We need to be strengthened through it. Now, the apostles aren't here anymore. They've moved on to glory. But guess what? God preserved the apostolic teaching for us in the Word of God. And so all we've got to do is pick it up and read it. And that's what we're supposed to do. Read it over and over. Keep on reading it. The more you read it, the more God's going to open your eyes and show you things. So Paul prays for himself in verse 11. But now his petition turns towards the church in Thessalonica. And he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. <clears throat> now, He prayed that their love for another would increase and abound. The word increase is the Greek word planazo, and it means to superabound. And then the word for abound here is perisuo, which means to (laughs) superabound. It means to be in excess, to excel. So the prayer is not simply that their love would increase, but their love would abound beyond limits, being exceedingly great and overflowing. You know what's so cool? The Lord answered this prayer. And we see that in 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, as he writes the second time to them. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And increasing is the same word we saw, planazo, all right? So he prays for that, then he says, it's happening, all right? He says, in love for one another and for all. I just had to throw this in there because it was interesting to me. The commentators argue who the all are. I mean, seriously, there's some serious arguments. So who's he mean by all? Is, is he talking about believers and non-believers? I mean, you know, they get getting into this big discussion. I'm like, are we supposed to love unbelievers? Yeah, absolutely, okay? Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, now, so hopefully all your enemies aren't Christian. (laughs) Hopefully you have some non-Christian enemies, so you can pray for them, right? All right, so we can pray for the unbelievers. All right, and I'd say, you know, of course this prayer includes unbelievers. Paul said this in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And then he says this, especially... To those that are the household of faith, and I think you know he has, he Paul stresses this: we are to take care of one another, we're to take care of the household of faith. But yes, our love goes beyond that to loving other people. I think that's a powerful, powerful witness, a testimony to Christ, is when we love people, especially unlovely people. Now, for all here, you know the commentator says, Well, he could ref- he could be referring to Christians outside the church of Thessalonica. I'm sure he is. He's saying all Christians, so whether they're in Thessalonica outside or whether they're unbelievers, let's throw everybody in there and just say, you know, we're we're called on to love people. Now, let me say something about the community here and about love. I think the Christian community is the school in which we learn to love. Because if you move yourself from the Christian community, real easy to love people when you're not around them. Isn't it? But when you're with them and interacting with people, living with people, then you learn to love. And that's what it's all about. So we have to be with one another so we can encourage and strengthen and other people help us to learn how to love, (laughs) sometimes in ways we don't want to. but. (laughs) And then Paul adds, as we do for you. In other words, the readers are to learn to love from Paul's own example. Paul showed them he loved them. He's still showing them because he keeps telling them, I want to get back. I want to be there with you. I want to help you. I just can't do it right now. And then in verse 13, now, don't think that those t- two verses were any indication of how long it's going to take us to do this verse, okay? <clears throat> he said, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Yeshua with his all his saints. Alright? Now, establish here is the same verb, sterizo, that we saw in chapter 3, verse 2, where Paul said, I'm sending Timothy to you to establish you, Stay sterizo, to strengthen them. But here, what I want you to see, it's the Lord who is going to establish them at the parousia. Now, keep in mind, he says, He may establish your heart at the coming of the Lord Yeshua. It is God here who is doing the strengthening And he's doing this strengthening at the parousia. The word coming here is parousia. This is the third time in this letter that Paul mentions the coming of the Lord. At the end of every chapter, he brings this up. I think it's something he wants them to understand. He wants us to understand. All right, the end of chapter one, he says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Yeshua, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He mentions it again at the end of chapter two. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Yeshua at His coming? Is it not you? And then again at chapter 3, So He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Yeshua with all the saints. Now, like He did in chapter 2, He uses the word here, parousia. This word means presence. And metaphorically, it, it has the idea of coming, To the disciples, the parousia of the Son of Man signified the full manifestation of his Messiahship, his glorious appearing in power as the Lord. They didn't understand he was leaving. They just knew he was going to come in power and glory. That's what they're looking forward to. Now, here's the question, $10,000 question. When was the parousia to happen? And that's where the debate goes, okay? And today you know. Very well, most people are very confused on this. But let's look at chapter 1. He says they're going to wait for his son from heaven. This is clear reference to the second coming. All right, no one questions that. All commentators will say, yeah, let's talk about the second coming. So the Thessalonians are waiting for Yeshua to come from heaven at his second coming. Now, what's interesting, and we went, on this when we went into this when we did uh, chapter 1, but wait is from the Greek word onomeno. It's found only here in the New Testament, but it's used four times in the Septuagint. We looked at some of those when we we're going through it. But "anomeno" comes from "ana," which means "upon," and Vine says it means it intensifies the meaning of "meno," which means "remain," "abide." So it conveys the meaning of expectant waiting. So the Thessalonians are sitting around and they're waiting. It's it's teaches sustained, patient, trusting, waiting. It pictures an eager looking forward to the coming of one whose arrival was anticipated at any time. BDAG, which is a lexicon, says it means to wait for, expect something or someone. So the first century Thessalonian believers were waiting for the second coming of Christ. Should they have been? I mean, if we're 2,000 years down the road and we're still waiting, should they have been waiting? I mean, that's what the church teaches. We're still waiting. So why were they waiting if we're still waiting? Would you wait for something that you really didn't expect to happen? No. I mean, why would you do that? All right. Paul also mentions the parousia in chapter 2. The Lord Yeshua at his parousia. Now here's the interesting thing about this verse. We really don't have a time indicator here, which is unusual. Okay, usually when the Bible mentions the coming of Christ, there's a time indicator with it. But in 313, he says that he may establish your hearts, blameless in holiness, before our God and Father at the parousia of our Lord Yeshua. Alright, now notice it's their hearts that are going to be established, not your heart, their heart. Okay? indicating they're going to see the second coming. Now, just in case, you know, the three times that Paul mentions this, second coming in this letter hasn't convinced you that the parousia was to happen in the lifetime of the first century Thessalonians, let's go to chapter 4, and look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming. Okay, what do you think they thought when they read that? Okay, we who are alive, that's Paul and the Thessalonians, we're going to be alive, we're going to be left at the coming. Now, at this point in time, it's about 20 years for the coming, all right? They have about 20 years to wait, but some of them are going to be alive, and we who are alive, were are left, we won't precede those who have fallen asleep. Again, coming here is parousia. Paul says, we who are alive. It's clear enough as a time statement, isn't it? I don't know how you get around this verse. We who are alive. They, what, were they confused? Was Paul confused? I mean, Paul taught that the Thessalonian believers are going to be alive when the Lord returns. Now, based on the view that the church today holds on the parousia, somebody's wrong. Okay? Was it Paul? Or was it the majority of the church? The church at large is still waiting for the parousia over 2,000 years and they're still waiting, but they say it's going to be soon. Okay? Paul said the first century believers were going to see it. So again, who's right? Well, before you answer that, let me just remind you that it wasn't just Paul who taught this, okay? Yeshua himself Said in Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he's going to repay each person according to what he has done. This is clearly a second coming passage. Everybody acknowledges that. The problem comes with the next verse. Truly I say to you, now the you here is not you, it's the you that he's talking to, all right? His disciples. There are some standing here who will not taste death. until they see the Son of Man coming as his kingdom. So he's telling his first century disciples, yep, I'm going to come, and some of you will still be around. This is 40 years before the coming. But he's saying, some of you are going to be alive. Some of you are going to see this happen. Okay, And then you come to Matthew 24, and he says, I say to you, this generation. It's interesting what people do with this text, but... You know, I mean, come on, just, you just use your heads. And he's talking to people and he's telling them, this generation, the generation you're living in, is going to see everything happen that I just talked about. And if you go back in the chapter, you can read all about the second coming, everything's going to happen, just like he said it was to that generation. So let me ask you again, who's wrong? Yeshua and the New Testament writers or the church? I think that anyone who's a serious student of the Bible will sooner or later come to realize there's a problem with Yeshua's predictions of the parousia if it has not happened yet. There's a problem there. And if you could just get people to acknowledge that, that's a really good start. Almost all mentions of the parousia have a time statement with them. He said, it's coming soon, quickly, shortly. Some of you standing here, this generation. He's at the door. (laughs) Over and over, everything, you know, how do we miss that? Coming soon. So if Yeshua didn't return in the first century as he said he would, something's wrong. And this goes to the inspiration of Scripture. So those people who are saying, We're waiting for the Lord. Well, then something's wrong here, people. Something's wrong with our Bible or something's wrong with Yeshua. Something, there's a mistake here. Somebody's got something wrong. Now, Dr. Christopher Christopher M. Hayes, who is currently professor of New Testament at the Biblical Seminary of Columbia, he thinks he has a solution to this problem. He's going to help us out, okay, because this is a problem. And he wrote a book called, When the Son of Man Didn't Come, a constructive proposal on the delay of the parousia. So he said, okay, he didn't come when he said he would, it's been delayed, we got to figure it out. What happened? Okay, so here's what Christopher says, all right? He says, if Jesus' prophecy about the timing of the kingdom's coming was not fulfilled, then isn't this Christianity thing really just all wrong? yes. Yes, it is wrong. And we have to admit that. We have to acknowledge that. He said it was happening soon. If it didn't happen, something's wrong. But he says, well, no, it's nothing's wrong. Actually, you see, even though Jesus did prophesy that he would return before the first generation, now get that, he understands, he's saying, Jesus is clearly saying, he's prophesying he's going to return, of disciples expired, In other words, he got it. Okay, he told the disciples he'd be back before they died. The important thing to remember is that Jesus was making a prophecy. And prophecies do not purport to forecast fixed future events. Prophecies are, by their very nature, conditional. (laughs) A prophesied outcome may or may not transpire. It all depends on how the audience responds to the message of the prophet. Perhaps the problem of the delay of the parousia is us. Oh, so we're the problem. That makes sense, right? No. So Hayes sees Yeshua's statement about the second coming as conditional prophecies, which aren't meant to be predictions of anything. They're dependent upon us. So let me ask you this. What was to happen to a prophet when his prophecy did not come true? death. Uh Uh-oh. That's a problem. That's kind of in the same Bible that this other stuff's in, I think, right? Deuteronomy 18. When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You don't need to be afraid of them. And if you back up, verse 20 says, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, that prophet shall die. So a prophet is either accurate or he's dead. It's not dependent on how you respond to the prophecy, okay? Now let me say this as nicely as I can. What Hayes says here about prophecy is one of the dumbest things I ever heard. I mean, it's just dumb. It's malignant dumb. Because the prophets were prophesied. It wasn't conditional stuff. Well, Hayes goes on to say, this this is kind of a trip for 21st century believers because we tend to think of the second coming of Christ as being firmly scheduled on celestial calendar. But that's definitely not what the New Testament authors all claimed. Well, again, he's wrong, okay? Because I think that a study in biblical typology... Would show how wrong he is. And the second coming was firmly scheduled on God's celestial calendar. The feasts of Yahweh, which we have gone over and over, lay out God's timeline in great detail. And we saw the accuracy of these feasts. The parousia was to happen 40 years after the crucifixion. And the crucifixion on the celestial calendar was to happen at the certain time, right? The 14th of Nisan, that's the day was that and guess what? Yeshua died on the 14th of Nisan. The fall feasts are all about the second coming. And they come 40 years after the spring feast, just to make, you know, four months, but it represents the 40 years. And so it's all laid out perfectly for us. But Hayes somehow is going to fix the solution and, you know, say, well, we're going to redefine a lot of things so you can make sense of this stuff, okay? Hayes is not the only one that's confused, okay? Uh, several commentators, I want to give you their, their explanation of this verse. You've got to deal with this verse if you're writing a commentary, but what do you say about it? Well, Stephen J. Cole, he writes this. We, li- we live that we may, and he means we live holy, talking about being blameless in holiness, in view of the fact that we will soon stand before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, Cole is a contemporary writer. He's alive today, but he says this, we will soon stand before our God and Father. We, us, we're going to stand before it soon. Well, in the first century, Yeshua said, behold, I'm coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. That sounds just like Matthew 16, 26, all right? So if soon means soon to us, what did it mean 2,000 years ago? That makes no sense at all. That's what I mean. You have to take words and say they have some meaning. He told them soon. He tells us soon. Uh, that doesn't mean, soon doesn't mean anything. Gene L. Green, commenting on 1 Thessalonians three thirteen, writes, This divine and royal event will take place at the final moment of history as we know it and will usher in a time of terrible judgment for those who do not obey the gospel. So to him, the parousia is history ending. Once it happens, it's all over. And that's why he doesn't think it's happened because it's obviously not all over. Yes, it was all over for somebody. (laughs) It was all over for the Jews. It was all over for Jerusalem. It was all over for the temple, but not for us. Well, Tim Shenton, he writes this. He says, The Thessalonians must look beyond the trials and tribulations they are enduring to the great day of Christ's return when all their troubles will be overcome. Now, pay attention to this. Pay attention. (laughs) The light's coming on, Sharon. (laughs) We got, all right, they're looking looking forward to the Christ's return when all their troubles will be overcome. And when they will be perfectly united with their Savior forever. Amen. I'm with them so far. Now watch this. Nothing comforts us more in our distress than the knowledge of Christ's second advent. It will be a day of great rejoicing victory when all we have survived to achieve, when all we have strived to achieve is accomplished. Let us lift up our heads, our redemption draws near. Now, if you learn to read with discernment, I mean, you're reading, and he's saying the first Thessalonians' troubles were ended at the but then he says, so will ours. Well, so how did that comfort them if it still hasn't happened yet? I mean, we're pushing things. This is crazy, people. All you have to do is just think. Christianity today has done everything it can to keep you from thinking. Because some of the things they believe doesn't fit with thinking. So you have to learn to use your brain, analyze things, be a critical thinker, not a critical person, be a critical thinker, okay? So what did Paul say was to happen at the coming of the Lord? He says that he would establish your heart's blameless in holiness. Now many see this as referring to practical holiness, all right? And it's got to be referring to either practical holiness or positional holiness. It's got to be one of those things, right? But, but notice what the text says, that he may establish your heart. And he, the antecedent of he is in the previous verse, it's the Lord. So the Lord's going to establish your heart. He's going to establish it blameless and holiness. This is not your practice. This is your position before God. God is going to do this for you. And I think it's really clear that he's speaking of positional holiness if you compare this with 523, which uses many of the same words and phrases. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's make you perfectly holy. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Yeshua, the Christ. So what I see Paul saying here is that their hearts will not be established blameless until the parousia of Christ. That's when the body of Christ is made mature. That's when the new temple is complete. Notice what Paul said to the Philippians. He says that he wanted to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that's what comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul only sees two kinds of righteousness, self-righteousness that leads to damnation, And God's righteousness given through faith, which equals salvation. And this is the righteousness that Paul wanted to have, which comes by faith in Christ. It's speaking of justification by faith alone. Now, I think that we understand that when we trust Christ, we receive Christ's righteousness. As Christians, we are as righteous as Christ. Now, it's hard for people to say, but you've got to learn to say it because it's true. And it's not harmful to speak the truth. I'm as righteous as Christ. People say, you don't look it. I know. (laughs) But I am it. That's my position before God. That's how God sees me. I need to work on you seeing me that same way. But that is how God sees me, okay? We're righteous. We stand complete in Him. Knowing this, what Paul goes on to say in this chapter can be a little confusing. He says, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Yeshua has made me his own. So what was it that Paul had not yet attained? Well, the Greek word used here for attained is lombano. It means to receive, to grasp, to seize, to acquire. Paul's saying, I don't have it yet. So what doesn't he have? Well, the verb lombano is transitive, but the object's not expressed. So is it the resurrection that he mentions in the previous verse? Yes, I think that's part of it. It's included, but it's more than that. In verses 4 through 11 of this chapter, it's a unit speaking about justification. The key verse being, we already looked at, verse 9 here, not having my own righteousness. And I think what Paul is saying here is that justification, his justification had not yet been consummated. Thus, he was not yet blameless in holiness. That's what he was aiming for. That's what his goal was. Now, I know that doesn't fit a lot of people's theology, but it really fits the context of what Paul's talking about here. As a side note, let me add this. The manuscripts P46 and D, along with Irenaeus, insert the clause here that I have or am already perfect they insert the clause, or have already been justified. So for the phrase, or I'm already perfected, that would mean what Paul was saying, not that I have already attained, or I've already been justified. So that really helps clear it up, if you understand what those manuscripts are saying. And I think that's that's justifiable. I think that there's uh, clear evidence that that is actually what he is talking about. Now listen, Yeshua came, he took our sin, he bore the penalty on the cross, and he gives us his righteousness. We have been declared righteous, not made righteous, declared righteous by God for all eternity. Can never be reversed, can never be changed. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, put to our account. That's justification, it involves imputation, Christ's righteousness. But at the time of Paul's writing, listen, righteousness was still a hope. Now, you might say, well, didn't Paul and New Testament saints already have the righteousness of Christ? Yes and no. Okay? The futuristic perspective of God's righteousness was clearly expressed by Paul in Galatians 5.5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, if righteousness was already fulfilled or completed event, Paul made a mistake here, by making it a matter of hope. You don't hope for what you have. You, you all get that, right? I mean, how, why would you? You're just dumb if you're hoping for what you have. Start enjoying it and start hoping for it, okay? Paul said this in Romans 8 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. You know, I got it. I don't hope for it. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. So if righteousness for Paul was a present reality, why would he hope for it? But Paul also talks as though it was a present possession. Because he says in Romans 4, 5, And to the one who does not work but believes, and him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we have to ask, Did Paul have Christ's righteousness, or was it still a future hope to him? Yes and yes. He had it, but it was still a future hope. You say, well, how can that be? Well, let me try to explain it, okay? First of all, this is what theologians call the already but not yet. Here's the mistake they make. Most theologians think we're still in the already but not yet. Okay? Nothing's changed. We're still in this same period. What they say still applies to us, The already but not yet only lasted 40 years. They had it. They waited consummation. And here's what most believers don't understand. We live in a different age than Paul lived in. Okay, Paul lived in what the Bible called the last days. They weren't the last days of earth. They were the last days of the old covenant Israel. And those last days began at Pentecost. They ended in AD 70 when the Jewish temple was destroyed. It was the last days of that system. God shut it down. We live in what the Bible calls the age to come. So when the New Testament writers talk about the age to come, they're talking about the age we live in. That's the New Covenant age. And this 40-year period from Pentecost to Holy was a time of transition, moving from the old to the new. And in this transition period, the New Covenant had been inaugurated but not consummated. It was a time of already, but not yet. We can see this in Ephesians 2.8. He says... For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. So Paul says they have been saved. That seems to be saying the redemption is complete, right? That's what it sounds like. Yet late in the same chapter to the same people he writes this. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure... Being joined together grows into a holy temple. Now, the present tense verb here, along with the preceding participle, shows that the continuance of growth process, indicating this temple is a living organism that continues to increase. Peter says to the saints, You are living stones. Now, I don't know. I've never seen a living stone. But we're being, we're stones getting this building of God. The first century people were living stones being put into this living building. Now, the future tense here, looking forward to, is not looking forward to an eschatological temple. We don't have a future tense here. It's a present tense dealing with the present temple that wasn't finished but is being built. It's growing. The Greek word for temple here is nos, which is the inner sanctuary. This is growing into a... And what was the inner sanctuary? It was the dwelling place of God. So this body is growing to a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, He says, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the ongoing process... He just said you were saved, but now He's saying we're growing, we're being put together. The ongoing process results in a building that God dwells in, Right? And the verb is present indicative in this tense, again indicating a continuance of the building. The process is still occurring when this was written. But here's what's interesting. The clear blessing of the new covenant is that God would dwell with his people. That's the new covenant blessing. I don't know anybody that wouldn't say we're in the new covenant today. And you say, "Was God dwell with people? Well, no, because we're still being built. No, we're not. The building got finished, (laughs) okay? This is not a 2,000-year building program, okay? Being built together into a dwelling place of God. Now watch Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's simply synonymous with the new covenant. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The old covenant had passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, again, referring to the new covenant of God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Amen. He dwells with us. We're sacred space, believer. We don't go to see God somewhere. He he dwells with us. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So the new Jerusalem is the new covenant, according to Galatians 4, 24 through 26. He says, for these are two covenants, but the Jerusalem above is free. The new covenant. So Paul tells the Ephesians believers that they're being built for a dwelling place of God. It was a process that was taking place, but at that time was still unfulfilled. That building's finished, people. It was finished in the first century, and God moved in. <laughs> And we're that building, okay? Living stones. Now, later in Ephesians, Paul writes this. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Again, this body needs to be built. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ. Now, according to this passage, the gifted men, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor, the teaching pastors, were given by God to equip the saints, and they were to bring this church from a state of infancy to adulthood. The word translated mature here in verse 13 is the same root word used in Philippians 3.12, teleos. In this passage in Ephesians, maturity is defined as the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ. This happened at the second coming. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we'll be like Him. Because we'll see Him as He is. So when Christ returned, all believers were made like Him. They were complete. They were fulfilled. Notice that it says we'll see Him as He is, not as He was. To be like Christ's people is to have His righteousness. That's what happened when the Lord returned. So God's goal for His church was that it be like His Son. Romans 8, 29. For those He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That took place in AD 70. When the Lord returned, bringing in the new heaven and earth, the new covenant, so the coming of the Lord for His people brought them full maturity and perfection spiritually. To be perfect is to have Christ's righteousness. It's to be blameless in holiness. It's to be sanctified completely. Salvation was not a completed event in the lives of the first century believers. It was their hope. They looked forward to its soon arrival. Look at Romans 13, 11 through 12. Paul says, besides this, you know the time. Most people today don't, okay? But they knew the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What? They already believe, but salvation's nearer now. Well, how's it getting nearer? Because the completion's coming. He says, the night is far gone. That's the old covenant. The day's at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So he equates their salvation with the day which was at hand, referring to the day of the Lord, know the time here is the Greek word kairos, and it means season, a special, critical, strategic period of time. Know what time you're living in. It's used of a season of great importance in redemptive history. The completion of redemptive history was at hand, and with it would come salvation. You know, Peter makes it clear that salvation wasn't complete either. And here's the thing, people. If the Lord still has not yet returned, then people have to understand your salvation is not complete. You're not going to heaven when you die. None of that's going to happen because it's not. if you're sinking, it hasn't fulfilled yet. Peter says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. It was ready to be revealed at the last time, which would happen at the return of Christ. See, the incompleteness of believers during the transition period, that's 80, 30 to 70, does not contradict Paul's affirmation in Colossians 2.10 that you're complete in Him. The certain completeness of Christ's work was the basis and the confidence of the transformation that was already at work with a future fullness drawing near. I think it's safe to say that most believers think redemption was completed at the cross. They just think that's it. It's all done. This is not what the Bible teaches. Redemption is tied to the second coming. Luke 21, 27, 28. And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's the second coming, okay? Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. When Christ returned, he brought redemption. See, as long as the old covenant existed, the believers were not blameless in holiness. They hadn't been perfected yet. They did not have access to God. Because of that, look at Hebrews writes, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 8 through 10. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So as long as that tabernacle stood, redemption wasn't complete. This was a problem with Hymenaeus and Philander. They're, they're saying the resurrection's already passed. It's all no, it's, no, not the temple's still standing. It, the new covenant can't be consummated when that new that temple is still there. It's still standing. And he says this is the temple was symbolic for the present age. According to this statement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. All right, so the way into the holy place has not been open as long as that thing's standing. We don't have access to God. But deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Under the Old Covenant, they were not made perfect. They weren't blameless in holiness. And because of this, they couldn't enter God's presence. Once the Old Covenant was destroyed, the believers are perfected, they enter the presence of God. What the saints had in the transition period was a down payment of the perfection that was to come. Now, they didn't have it, but it was coming because they had something really important. They had an engagement ring from God. And that engagement ring was the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. So they heard the gospel, they believe, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. All right, so they heard it, they believed it, and when they believed it, they're sealed and this Holy Spirit, he says, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So they don't have it, but they have a guarantee. They have an engagement ring saying, I'm going to come marry you. All right? It's, it's going to happen. The word guarantee is the Greek word erabon. It means a pledge, part of the purchase money or property given in advance to secure the rest. It's the earnest now maybe maybe an engagement ring is even a bad reference here because engagements are broken. Okay, God's giving you a guarantee. These first century saints, He gave them a guarantee. You trusted me, I'm going to bring you to completion. I'm not going to lose you. You have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. We see the same idea in Second Corinthians one twenty two, and and He's telling this to the Corinthians. That's the funny part. Okay, these guys, if they were messed, up, there was a messed up church. This is a messed up church. And I saw a church that had the title The First Church of Corinth, and I thought, wow. <laughs> Why would you name your church that? Okay? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Don't expect much when you come here. We're fighting over the Lord. So we're doing everything wrong. We're getting drunk. You know, we're fighting each other. We're committing sins that Gentiles don't even commit. But yeah, come to church. Yeah. Second <laughs> Corinthians one twenty two, And he was also put his seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. All right, they were guaranteed they're going to make it redemption. They're going to get salvation. Same thing in 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So the transition saints, they were in the already but not yet. They had, they had the guarantee of it. They didn't have the full possession of it yet. They were waiting for that. But they had the guarantee of what was going to come. And so he's telling these first century Thessalonians, he's praying that God would establish your hearts blameless and holiness before God the Father at the parousia. When this happens, may God make you blameless and holiness. And if they were, if they had the guarantee this was going to happen, all right? They were made holy, they were made blameless at the parousia. It happened in AD 70. Now, if the Lord has not yet returned, then we're still waiting for salvation. We're still waiting for righteousness, and this is a long, long time, 2,000 years. Everybody's still waiting, waiting for the completion, waiting for the redemption, waiting for the Lord to come back. But people, I got good news for you. He has returned, and we're waiting for nothing, okay? Nothing, because we have it all right now. We have the fullness. Now, this does not mean as some people try to say, well, then it all ended in AD 70. It all began in AD 70, people. It was completed, and we began to live in the glories of the new covenant. And it's ongoing. The glories just keep unfolding, and we're living in it. We're living in the presence of God. We don't have to take an animal and go to a special place and hope God accepts it. We're accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1.6. We're accepted in Christ. If you understand your position in Christ, it's going to change everything about you. And you'll want to live for God because of all He has done for you. We have been made, believers, blameless in holiness. That's our position before Yahweh. The temple is completed. The living temple that we are. And God moved in, and we are sacred space. God dwells with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love for us. Lord, thank you for the truth of Scripture, Lord. It is just so encouraging. Lord, I feel for those people sitting around waiting for something that they have. How sad, Lord, to miss out on the glories, the joy of the new covenant, to dwell in the presence of God. Father, open their eyes. Lord, give us a boldness, give us a zeal to share this truth with people we know. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Amen. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments? Ren? Um, since redemption was not complete at the cross, like you said, what was it that Jesus was referring to when He said it was finished? The payment was done. The payment is complete. There's nothing else to pay. There's nothing else to be given to make this happen. But now, <laughs> the symbolism is the priest. <clears throat> on the day of atonement went into the Holy of Holies they didn't view redemption as complete until he came out of the Holy of Holies if he didn't come out and when he went in they would tie a rope tradition says around his ankle because in case they heard the bells not ringing anymore who's going in there? anybody going in? now there's nothing in scripture about a rope being tied to him this is tradition This, would, but it makes sense to me because if he's got bells on and you're in there and he's in the Holy of Holies if he dies in there you're not going in. I'm not going in to get him. Okay. How are you going to get him out? So if you had a rope, you just drag this guy out. Okay. Better luck next year. No. Okay. So when, when the high priest came out of the Holy of Holies, it was a sign. The Lord accepted the sacrifice. Redemption is complete. And that's the thing. When the Lord returned, he's returning. Their sacrifices accepted. We are complete. The 40-year transition. It's a second exodus. It's over. And we now are in the land. Okay. Completion, fulfillment. Yes, John. Could you just maybe describe like the difference? Like, the first century saints had the Spirit, and now us living in the consummated new covenant, the presence of God dwells with us. And I don't know if it's something that we can really explain, but how is that different? How is the presence of God that dwells with us now in the new age different from the Holy Spirit that was given to the first right. right they had the Holy Spirit you know because Christ said I'm leaving you okay and I'm sent what well, if I if I don't go away I'm not sending the spirit but I'm going away and I'm sending the comforter he's going to get you through this time he's your guarantee now we have the fullness of the Trinity all right and they all dwell with us the Spirit dwelt with them and got them through that transition time we live and people you know they get well who do I pray to they're all God okay. <laughs> they're all God. You know, they're not jealous of one another. So don't worry about that. Okay? There there's perfect unity in the Trinity and the Trinity, the Trinity dwells with us and we have total access to God 24/7. We can come into his presence. So, you know, we, we have, like I said, we have it all right now, all right? Do you have a question? Yeah. Um you probably answered this with <coughs> my brain. Anyway, um, it just seemed like the commentary, you have taken this other comment, the commentary we talked about, it. the commentator or whatever, made my ears get, I need some of her right, probiotics. <laughs> um, they, it's like they don't, they, they don't reread what they've written to see if it lines up with scripture. And they re, they well, re-read. they think it does. It so. says what they want it to say, but it doesn't really, I mean, it, it Oftentimes denies the deity of Christ within the author uh, authority of Scripture and whatever do they not? Where did we go so far off track? I think one of the big problems is consistency. You have to be consistent with what you're saying, not you know flopping all back and forth. Is it logical? Does it make sense? Where we went off track? Okay, to me, this is my idea of how we got off track. Okay, the calf path. All right, we talked about the calf path. People follow the calf path. One guy reads a commentator, he regurgitates what the commentator says, the next person regurgitates what he says, nobody looks into it, they just, well he said it, I like this guy, he said it, I'm going to go with that, and we'll go down, we don't stop, we don't look into it, and that's why we're called to be Bereans, we got to check up behind people, just because someone says something, what's your validation for that, where are you getting that from, you know, how do I know that's true, you look into it. And like I said, all of us are not driven to study deep and hard, but you can if you want to. The tools are there. You can investigate anything, someone says, you know, by doing a little research yourself, okay? And that can be done. But we, people just regurgitate what everybody else says. I mean, on and on. And that doesn't matter how stupid it is. I mean, really. And I'm like, why doesn't somebody stop here and take a look at something, you know? Like, let's go into the original language and say, does this really line up? Because too often it just doesn't. You know, it just doesn't. And these passages on the second coming, they're like, wait till we get to chapter four and see what they do with this stuff. I mean, we, you know, we who are alive at the coming, how do they deal with that? Again, they come like, you know, haze and come up with, oh. oh That's all dependent on us. We didn't like it when he came, or we didn't accept it, so he's waiting for some other time. That's where dispensationalism came from, people. Okay, it came from liberals attacking Christians because your Bible's not true because the Lord said he was coming in that generation. He didn't come. Christianity's true and untrue, end of it. And so the dispensationalists, they got a good argument. What do we do? Okay, time out, they said. Time out. That was for Israel, okay, now God stopped with Israel, dealing with the church. When he goes back to Israel, then the clock starts again. Then it'll be soon again. So they got to read the whole thing, you don't have to worry about soon. It's not even to you, it's somebody else. We're in the, we're in the intermission period, the parenthesis, so to speak. And people bought into that hook, line, and sinker. It, it's a, I guess, a justifiable explanation. It's nonsense, but at least tries to explain why the Lord didn't do what he said. I just think it's easier just to believe him. <laughs> yeah. I might not understand how he did everything and when, it you know, but he said it. I believe it. Let's go with that, okay? So somebody got it wrong and everybody else was lazy. Yeah, that's the thing. Again, few people do their own research. Okay, we follow the experts, you know, and we follow... Right. somebody prints something and they build off of that. That's exactly true. And and no one questions it, especially when money gets involved. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't question it. Or again, in the church, if you go aside from what someone is teaching, then, okay, you're a heretic and you get thrown out, you know, because you're not teaching what everybody else is teaching. We're all teaching the same thing. You get on the program or get out. And I'm like, that's how the church got so messed up. You know, it's crazy. It's just become an entertainment center. You know, no one wanting to really study the Bible. If you if you really teach the Bible, you can thin out the herd really quickly. Any entertainment like we have here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. All right. Whoa! Got a bunch of comments from our online community. Thank you so much. Another amazing teaching. I am so thankful for you and BBC. Well, thank you. I'm thankful for our extended family that joins us and partakes in this. Uh, Chris says redemption was no more complete at the cross than the redemption the Israelites from Egypt was complete on the night of the Passover. That's true. It would be 40 more years until they entered the promised land and their redemption was complete. And that's the whole thing. That, that's where, that's the picture we're following. A second Exodus. We're going along the same line. And again, this is typology. This is very important in theology. But you know, Hayes just ignores this and like God didn't have a time. He just figured I'll come when I'll send him whenever I'm ready. You know, no, that's not right at all. Uh, in Revelation twenty one one, it says there was a new heaven and a new earth, and the sea was no more. Does that refer to the sea in the temple that Solomon built? Since the Old Covenant was finished, there is no longer a need for ceremonial washings or basings. You know, there's all kinds of views on what the sea is. The sea, some people say, refers to Gentiles. The sea, often in the Bible, refers to chaos. Okay? It was chaos. The, the Israelites did not like the water. That was the, that was the gate to the underworld. It was chaos. So there's just no more chaos in the New Covenant. Okay? Because all these false gods are dealt with also. Which are causing chaos, okay? So I think that's the I think that's the reference there, but you know, I'm not gonna die on that hill, all right? What a Father's Day gift you delivered to the <laughs> to the body of Christ today. Astounding, beautiful beyond words. Thank you. Good teaching today. Your cheerful attitude today came through the screen <laughs> straight to our hearts. Thanks, Junior. That's Junior and Canada. It's our Canadian brothers joining with us. All right, anybody else? Oh, still got some coming in here. Hang on. Trying to get all these. I don't like to get home and got questions. I guess this, yeah, this is from Gary. It says, Thank you, David. We are blessed. And thankful for BBC, the chat room, and the conference. We are built up and comforted because of everything y'all do for you and for us. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate that. Yeah, the chat room, you know, people, you're watching us. If you don't get in the chat room, if you want to meet some people, go in the chat room. You can meet other believers. You know, maybe, you know, get connections there that will last an eternity, you know. So I don't know who's in your area. That's a good way to find out. Talk to people in the chat room. And see what's happening. We want to connect people. I think that's because the connections are so important. So important. You want to tell people where they can find the channel? Because we have people watching all over the internet, not just over the live stream channel. Okay, so what you're saying is they have to go to live stream. Yeah, okay. Okay, I'm, I'm learning here, people. So what they're telling me is all the things we broadcast on Rumble, YouTube, Facebook, they all have chat rooms, but the main chat room is on live stream. So if you go to live stream, there's a live stream chat room. That's where most... Yeah, you can, well, you can go to live stream itself, but you can get there from the website. If you just click on the brand live button, it'll take you to live stream. There's a chat room there. You got to sign in. You have to sign in, right, or something. You sign in. And, and you know, get an account with live stream, and then you'll get a notification. I believe also when we're going live. Um, okay, I feel like there's something here I'm not seeing, but but yeah, there's people that hang out there, and they can answer. A lot of the people in there can answer your questions. You know, if you have questions about certain things, they could they could answer them. David, I heard a pastor say, if you do yoga, you must stop because it's bringing you into a form of worship to other gods, what do you say? I say they're full of malarkey, okay? okay yoga is a form of exercise. Now, you know, you, there's meditation involved in yoga, and it, so it depends on what you're doing. If you go there for the yoga, for the exercise, I would stay away from these places that you know, get into all this Eastern meditation. I wouldn't want to be involved in that, but, I mean, exercise is exercise. There are no... The, god, the false gods have been done. They're destroyed, okay? They're done. Alright, now I know there's a lot of Satanists out there today, and many of them will say they're not they don't even believe in Satan. They're just wor- they're just like this crazy form of worship or whatever. So no, I don't think a form of exercise is, you know, gonna get you condemned before God. Okay, someone says, To be sure, do you believe in progressive sanctification? Our purpose on earth preparing us for heaven, our already completed sanctification. Jan. I'm going to answer that next week, okay? Because next week we start in chapter 4, and Paul is telling the Thessalonians, you guys are messed up here, okay? You need to deal with this. This is the will of God, he tells them. Your sanctification. But just to give you a hint, I do not believe... Well, it's it's hard to answer this. I believe we should be growing as Christians. But what the Bible talks about progressive sanctification was for the first century saints, they were growing in the holiness in their position. All right. And I'll get into that more in depth, but I don't want to leave you hanging. I'll get into that more next week as we as we talk about that, okay? Someone says thank you. You're welcome. Thank-